0: Uh, Good morning, everybody. I'm uh, Rich Kendrick, Senior Managing Director for Equities at uh, KBW and Stiefel-Nicholas. With me, I have Barry Sloan, Chairman and CEO of NewTek, ticker NEWT, and Eileen Palmer, who is Head of Strategies at Pennant Park. They have two public BDCs, uh, PNNT, which is more of a fixed rate, and then they have PFLT, which is a short-term um, you know, floating rate BDC, one of the three or four that are out there. I, I thought for everybody's sake, because probably most of you were here last year, we would just uh, run through a brief, very brief, sort of where the market is coming in the last year. Um, last year, um, the NAVs were trading, most of the indexes or if you look at the 2044 public REITs, public BDCs, they're trading at 90 uh, percent of NAV. Uh, now they're at 92.2 percent of NAV. Average has been about 90.7. Uh, short interest has gone up from 1.3 to point six in here. Everybody needs to realize that with these dividends, these stocks are very hard to short because you're having to pay a lot for them and sometimes they're very hard to borrow. What's interesting is the market has totally recovered back to last year's levels. Uh, During the December debt tantrum, um, the S&P probably sold off 9 percent. BDCs probably were just a little worse than that. If you look at it year to date, uh, the BDC markets are up uh, 12% versus 9% uh, and yields are down currently a little bit from 9.1 versus 9.6 last year. Um, if you, no matter which sector you look at, we look at it in 500 million and above, 250 to 500, and then under 200. Uh, all are trading right around a 90 mean and a 90, 90 median average. NAV, Uh, these three BDCs are all in the just barely under 500, we would expect, with some recovery and some additional issuance, um, you know, to see them move into that upper bracket. As a way of sort of looking at this, in 2012, there were 23 deals done in the BDC market. 11 of those were baby bonds. We'll come back to that. Last year, there were 44 deals done by BDCs. Sixteen were baby bonds and this year there have been eleven deals, three three baby bonds have been done. We expect there to be two or three BDC IPOs this year and we expect there to be continued M and A activity as some of the smaller BDCs without big parents just can't sort of they, they can't they can't really grow and so they've turned turned themselves into sort of a sort of yeah sort of dead money. Uh, with that, I'm going to ask uh, Barry to sort of briefly go over NewTek and then ask Eileen to get, you know, 30,000 feet on the pennant entities. Thanks, Barry. Rich.
1: Uh, good afternoon. Uh, NewTech Business Services Corp., uh, internally managed BDC, stock symbol NEWT. Our website is NewTek1.com, N E W T E K O N E. We've been a BDC for approximately four and a half years. We've been a publicly traded uh, company since September of 2000. Uh, we're very much of a unique BDC in that we actually have operating businesses sitting underneath the BDC umbrella. Um, the five primary business lines, we are a small to middle market business lender. We are also a payment processor. Our payment processing business is significant that we do have to uh, disclose because it's a material uh, portfolio company in our in our uh, overall portfolio. Uh, we're also a tech solutions company, insurance agency, payroll health and benefits. Companies had a very strong track record uh, over the last five years in excess of a 20 percent total return per year. Uh, last year, we beat the major market indices by 5 to 10 percent. And this year, we're up to date about, uh, we're running about 29 percent up year to date, including the dividends. So, we're Pleased with how we're performing, but we are very different and very unique than most of the BDcs.
2: I'm Eileen Patrick. I'm Head Strategy at Pennant Park. Pennant Park has actually been around since before the global financial crisis. The BDC PNNT ticker, you know, is PNNT. Pennant Park was founded back in 2007. You know, I think Rich touched on. It has more of a what we call across the capital structure. So you will see. In addition to first lien, you'll see some unitranche loans. You'll see some second lien. So, it, it we're able to solve problems for, for companies and financial sponsors that could be both second lien, some junior capital as well as some senior capital. In 2011, we founded PFLT, which is the other publicly traded B- BDC, Pennant Park Floating Rate Capital, that has a. Predominantly senior focused, like 90%, 99% is actually first lien in that portfolio. 100% is floating rate, and you know that's a. What we sort of joke that you know Pnnt is safe enough for your mother, P- Pflt is safe enough for your grandmother, because you know if you look at the risk profile and the return profile, those are you know a little bit different risk reward, but we like both of them very much, and you know we tend to focus on you know financial sponsors is the source of you know our our underlying loans which tend to be cash flow loans and you know so that's been you know both of them both have grown nicely and we've been able to you know do a lot of things is like you know we've grown very nicely and have been very proud of the track record that we've had since before the credit crisis i think uh, our older fund, PNNT, I think has 30 basis points of cumulative losses in the 12 years that it's been in inception.
0: That's great. I, I, I think one thing that we have not really talked about so much in the past is everybody wants to talk about their portfolio, but I think it's important to realize that in the last couple of years, additional sources of financing have become available. To BDcs, in, institutional bond deals, what we call baby bonds, which tend to be senior unsecured, um, five-year non-call two, seven-year non-call three, ten-year non-call five. They're almost they're all listed on the New York or the uh, Nasdaq. Um, we're continuing to see JVs for financing. Um, we're continuing to see senior loan funds are sidecar onto these things, and so. We think that the BD universe by and large has tried to move off 100% bank lines. If you think back a couple of years ago, when when the credit crisis hit, the banks tried to pull or shorten their bank lines to the BDCs. Some of them couldn't get bank loans, or the bank loans you know, were at such exorbitant rates. That is no longer the case, but I, I think. We're going to ask both of these guys how they sort of look at how we were funded versus just sitting on a handful of banks, bank banks.
1: Well, you know, from an issuer's perspective, um, I think we've done three separate raises on baby bonds. Um, From uh, the standpoint of ease, came right off of the shelf. Um, Frankly, they were very easy to do, didn't require a road show. I, I think with respect to, Uh, investors in baby bonds, it, you know, I'll be Captain Obvious for the moment, it's really important to look through to the underlying assets. Is this BDC loaded with sub-debt, benzene equity, or is it senior secured? What's the real leverage ratio? Is there SBIC debt in there? Is it not SBIC debt? How levered are the underlying assets? So, um, in our case, we've always been a very under-levered company. We've been around for 19 years, so we survived 08-09 without a government bailout and have always been able to manage a risk. And I think that's, uh, that's rewarded us with good effective pricing in the baby bond market.
2: And from time to time, we have had baby bonds outstanding. We've had publicly traded high-grade debt outstanding. You know in both our funds I think the thing that we certainly focus on is having I would say a variety of diversity in financing so we do have the the classic bank lines but we also augment that with unsecured debt in varying forms some you know, Come in the form of like SPV ring fence financing for some first lien assets. Again, all the debt consolidates, but you know, we just try to finance, I would say, with sort of long duration so that you don't have any maturities coming up on you. But you also have, I would say, a variety of you know, tools in the toolbox in terms of unsecured debt, secured debt, and a variety of counterparties. And I think that's I think I was looking at a sheet the other day where we probably have north of, you know, 20 different banking relationships, and, you know, that doesn't include the SBIC debt, doesn't include, like, high-grade debt that we have outstanding, you know, but, like, you have 20 different banking relationships, and, you know, the the tenor's tenor's long, and I think we probably manage over 2.5 billion of debt in, you know, our variety of funds.
0: Um, Thank you, guys. Um, We believe that, you know, both the size, where you don't have to go out like in Aries and need to raise three to five hundred million at a clip, that these smaller guys have the ability to go out and do fifty, seventy-five, hundred million dollars with pretty decent, with with very good execution. Most of them are now carrying Egan Jones rating, as everybody here is aware. Uh, this year, under the Small Business Jobs Act, uh, they let the leverage go from one to one to two to one. I think if you really look at it, nobody really ran at one to one. They ran at 0.8, 0.9. Now they're running at 1.2. Standard and Poor's uh, t- didn't like that. Uh, knocked a lot of the triple B's down to double B plus. Most of the most issuers dropped Standard and Poor's, and we have seen Crawl uh, and Egan Jones step in. The reason this is important for you all is the baby bond market is not purely a retail retail business. About 30% of this stuff because of the NAIC rating you get with the B rating are going to small insurance companies that buy a million to two million. There's also been a developed, uh, f- you know, funds that just buy baby bonds. Um, I think, as we sort of, another thing that I think very much differentiates BDCs from closed-end funds is the kind of research that everybody in the space has. If you think about most closed-end fund research, it's based on are you above or below NAV? Very little of it has to do with what strategy, what, what, how the assets are going to line up, how the debt is going to line up. Um, where in the BDC space, these while they are 40X companies and theoretically closed-end funds, uh, you, the industry provides company-by-company company research They talk about strategy. They talk about every asset in their portfolio. How are they funded? And so I'd be interested to hear from you guys what you think of the importance of the ratings and the conferences and all of that means to you guys.
1: Well, I think that, um, you know, as Rich pointed out, from a rating agency perspective, uh, Standard & Poor's, who probably was the leader in the business, but they were the leader based upon one-to-one, And after that, in my opinion, there was not much to the rating. Um, The other rating agencies are doing a deeper dive looking into what we're doing. Uh, But you need to really be transparent and look through the assets. In our portfolio, uh, one of our uh, biggest portions of the portfolio is our SBA 7 a business, where we make a loan, we sell a government guaranteed piece off and we're left with an uninsured but non-subordinated class. The average loan size is 180000 It adjusts over prime. We've been in that business 17 years. We've done nine securitizations off of that collateral. They're all in Intex. So it's very easy for investors to actually follow the creditworthiness of the loans that New Tech has done over the course of 16 and 17 years with respect to the full frequency, severity, and diversification. Um, I think it's uh, certainly advantageous for investors to be able to invest in debt of these companies if they can actually look through and see what they're investing in. So if you look at our Ks and Qs, every single loan, which is marked to the market every quarter, is in there. Whether it's a $5,000 loan or a a $50,000 loan or a $500,000 loan, it's in the Ks and Qs, and it goes through a rigorous process every single quarter.
2: No, I think you touched well on fundamentally what we think you know, some of the transparent you know, advantages are for BDcs, and when you know when we tend to think about leverage, it's to the point you were making. So you know we have the the one fund that has you know some some junior debt and some senior debt, and it has probably more senior debt today because of where we think we are in the, the credit cycle. But when you think about leverage, you think about that in the context of the kinds of assets that you have in the portfolio. So for PFLT, which is our more senior-focused fund, That is, you know, we've given guidance in terms of, you know, how do you think about leverage there, and that's probably comfortable, you know, 1.4 to 1.7 times in our fund that PNNT that's across the capital structure and has some junior debt. I think it's like 45 percent sort of second lien and, you know, some equity, and, you know, that's probably 1.1 to 1.5 times in terms of a target ratio. Today, we're inside, well inside of, you know, these ratios for our funds, but, you know, again, to the point of being able to look at, you know, what are the underlying assets? You know, we have the same process in terms of each and every quarter. Every loan that we have goes to a third-party valuation firm. They independently come back with an actual value. So, you know, we're not in the valuation business, but, you know, that at least you can look at each and every loan that we have made, and it's entirely transparent. You know, one of the things that, you know, when people think about financial services generally You know, it's harder to have, I'd say, such a transparent view with, you know, a bank or an insurance company because you get, you know, just sort of big asset classes. And, you know, here you have perfect transparency to every name. And I think, you know, as Rich was saying, the, the notion of research and why is that important, I do think in the BDC space, Analysts have gotten better and better over time to be able to talk about, you know, what is the strategy, what are the assets, and, you know, that gets, you know, I think people to better understand the business.
1: Um, Coming back to your question, Richard, I wanted to add one other thing. I remember before they changed the leverage ratio, being on an earnings call, and I think we were like .83 or .84 in the leverage ratio, one of the analysts said, Oh my god isn't that really high i said no and they said well, well what do you mean i said well frankly you know we were a non-bank lender before we converted into a bdc four and a half years ago we were leveraged four to one and we survived 08-09. so if you're a baby bond investor and your sole investment is predicated on like 1.3 to 1.7 i think you're missing the boat and i think even at two to one these are very modest leverage ratios but it's real important to look uh, through, um, the, through the company, see what they're investing in, see how long their track record is, um, and you can get a pretty good feel for how much risk you're really taking on, as well as whether you're in senior secured or MAZ and SBIC debt. You really need to do a full evaluation. And, um, but I, I, definitely, I definitely recall that conversation. And it's like, so I went back to the analyst recently, I said, remember that conversation? He said, Yeah. I said, Well, what do you think now? It's two to one. I mean, and it's the same analyst that's actually upgraded us from a stock perspective, because we don't believe at these leverage ratios um, we're taking on significant risk. There's plenty of equity underneath the inherent debt for investors to be comfortable with.
0: I, I, another couple things. I think when you look at BDC debt, if there was a deterioration in asset quality, unlike a closed-end fund, the, the BDCs just can't issue more debt. But it, it, they have time to be able to rebalance their balance sheets. A closed-end fund, and some of you know some of the some of the sectors have been particularly hard hit since the you know the meltdown. You have to cure. So in other words, you have to go out and liquidate securities. And when you're doing that, you're probably doing it at very close to the bottom of the range. So it can really leave some pretty big damage to NAV. I think if you look at these guys and the way they use these BDCs, um, they all have a call feature. So as, as interest rates have come down, BDC baby bonds have tightened probably from 600 off to 350 to 400, maybe even into the low 300s off. You're still talking about single B type levels. Uh, On what we believe to be sort of a triple B type of credit. I don't think anybody has lost money I'm not saying they haven't lost money if they sold it But there have been no defaults where anybody has been hurt in the BDC market I'm not saying that couldn't happen in a major meltdown, but I I think those things are pretty interesting The other thing is if you guys if, if people start to look at this space You need to watch the yield to the calls these deals all have short calls And so they may be just trading at 25 and a half, but if they're callable tomorrow, (laughs) you're going to have a negative yield to the call. And the market is robust enough that as you run in the yield curve, you know, you get closer and closer, it all of a sudden makes sense to finance these things, move them back out so that they have a little longer duration. So that is one thing that I think people forget about when you just look at a ticker and it's like, wow, these sevens are trading at 25 and a half. Those sevens are going to be refinanced out in the, <laughs> in the next couple weeks. So that's just sort of uh, something to think about. How are you all seeing, are you guys seeing spread compression, which I, which affects everybody, closed-end funds because of the high-yield market, BDCs because of what they do? Are you seeing yield compression sort of in the middle market? If some, pe- We've seen some dividend cuts in here.
1: Um, because of way our, our business model works, which basically is direct to the business owner, uh, and there's no intermediary, a business development officer, a loan rep, a broker in the middle, we fortunately haven't seen spread compression. In the SBA business, we've been prime plus two and three quarter max for nine years running, don't have to cut the rate. We structure loans for borrowers, we don't position ourselves as SBA lender because We do other things than make government loans. We now have a program with uh, BlackRock TPC to do non-conforming loans. I think we're we're somewhat unique. We're direct to the borrower. There's nobody coaching in the middle. And therefore, we're not typically in a competitive state. Where we are competing is if the borrower can put down 30% equity and basically can get a bank line, they're going to wind up getting cheaper financing than us. We're basically in a non-bankable area because we're 10 to 25-year amortization, because we are no covenants in the the loan, and uh, a single-digit interest rate. So we give borrowers favorable terms that don't work for banks, and we're able to get a rate. Everything's personally guaranteed, so we think that the credits are good and strong. I should also note that all of our securitizations, which were S&P rated, have held their rating, or been upgraded over the course of nine years.
2: And on our end, um, we focus on, you know, middle market loans, so average EBITDA of an underlying company, maybe 15 to, you know, 35 million. So when you think about where most spread compression comes from, it comes from a more broadly syndicated market, right? So we, we are middle market. And, you know, we still tend to get, you know, we get covenants on our deals. We, you know, definitely focus on, you know, call protection on our deals. But we focus on companies that we think have, you know, strong recurring free cash flow. We tend to cover middle market financial sponsors. That's where we get, you know, probably 90 plus percent of the deals that we are seeing. Sometimes we occasionally do a direct loan to a company that we may have known for a long time or have known the management team or something to that effect where you have an edge, you know, In today's environment, we've certainly been moving up capital structure. So, even in PNNT, I think 55% of the portfolio today is first lien. So, one could look at, you know, if you looked at us probably two years ago, the average yield on a yield basis was maybe 12% um, of the portfolio. Today, it's like 10 and a half, 10 10 and three quarters, something to that. But that's been a function of moving up the capital stack. is it a competitive market you know yes there are times it can be a competitive market we tend to because we've had long standing relationships with sponsors where something is about like the last basis point on a loan those aren't you know those don't tend to be the loans we make you know we want to be able to be constructive on a situation we like to we have to like the risk reward But if something is going to be sort of priced to perfection where, you know, other people will probably be far more aggressive than we would be. So I think long-windedly to answer your question, yes, the market's gotten a little more competitive and, you know, but I think we've also taken the view that we would much prefer trading off a little bit of rate if we had to relative to, because covenants to us are you know, important, so being able to have maintenance covenants and you know, having you know, a lot of sort of sponsor equity and keeping leverage relatively low in the underlying companies, that's, that's far more important to us. Uh,
0: that brings up uh, an, an interesting point, and I think, Barry, this one may, the way you operate, this one may not be so relevant to you. There is a concept that there could be less defaults because everybody's moved to Covenant Light, or so many of these big deals are Covenant Light. So it's hard to get them to go bankrupt initially, but if they do, the severity is much, much higher. And I was wondering if either of you guys had sort of a view on that, because you both, especially you, Eileen, because you've moved up the capital structure and you do get covenants.
2: I, I think yeah inevitably in a credit business you will have some bumps in the road with the company you know no one's going to have a hundred percent perfect track record you, you touched on you know being able to have the runway to figure out you know what do you do if you have a bump in the road so you know we do have restructuring expertise we are able to there have been times we've actually taken over the company changed out management teams to be able to you know, Basically, if we feel like there's a pathway for a company that, you know, had some bump in the road, whether it was bad management, whether it's like you, you lost some major customer and time and there's a pathway for them to recover, we'll take an active role to make sure that we don't leave, you know, money on the table for our debt investors, our equity investors. We want to be able to maximize recoveries. So, you know, covenants... To us, you know, because we're actually able to see, we get you know monthly financials from these underlying companies, so you tend to be able to see a problem even if probably before someone actually breaks a covenant. So you're having you're having a conversation with the company, you're having a conversation with the financial sponsor who owns the company. So to to us that matters a lot because it gives you a fair bit of protection if, you know, there is a problem and candidly you see problems coming pretty sooner than someone actually broke a covenant.
1: Um, we think, on a, you know, on a $15 million or $50 million loan, covenants matter. That's not where we lend. We're lending from a couple of thousand to say 10 or 15 million and we trade off personal guarantees for every 20% equity owner or greater. And they're joining several. So our borrowers are all in. It's not like a, an LBO sponsor or some financial player that's making a bet, and if the deal goes bad, they throw their keys at it. Our borrowers have their whole life on it. They've got personal assets pledged, uh, our loans are typically collateralized by hard assets like. Commercial real estate or residential real estate, about 60 to 65 percent. So we trade that off 60 days down the and, and that's why we don't burden these smaller middle market companies with covenants. 60 days down the road, if they haven't paid, we're basically telling them they've got to be current on a month. So we have a monetary covenant, they've got to be current, otherwise, we're taking all their assets. That's a hard explanation to go back to your spouse, other guarantors, whether silent or active in the business. So that's a trade-off that works for us. Now, you would say, why do businesses still take the money? Well, number one, they certainly believe in what they do, which makes us feel very good about it. Two, they want a 10- to 25-year AM, which lowers their payment, which makes it a much more affordable situation. They're in a single-digit interest rate, and they don't have to have the expense internally of dealing with leverage ratios, liquidity ratios, things of that nature, where they'll typically get tripped up. So it fits for our world, and it works, and we don't think by not having that. However, we do think when you're looking at the 15 to $50 million space, and it's very cash flow oriented, you want to have those early warning mechanisms.
0: And just, I think, so that people can understand, what kind of loss and defaults do you have? Because your model, well, I think we need to clarify, you're not a loan to own guy. You don't want these assets, right? Well, I mean, you don't want to look like you're a pawn shop.
1: No, I mean, no, our, that, that's very true because I think you need a license for that. But. Uh, and, oh, I am from Brooklyn. I've never experienced it uh, working in a pawn shop. But, now our rates are typically uh, prime plus two and three-quarters, or if they're fixed, they range from seven and a half to, say, nine and a half. Um, and, you know, for the borrower, effectively, we will consider over-advancing on the primary collateral. Banks want 30 percent down. We might do 20 percent down. But that's just on the primary collateral. So we'll take secondary and tertiary collateral, which gets our total LTV down. But on a bank's book, an 80% LTV, that could be pushed into the classified bucket. So we figured out a marketplace that banks have no interest in, but borrowers who want a little bit of extra leverage, who want a long amortization schedule, who don't want covenants, they come to us. And importantly, they come to us without brokered intermediaries that are showing the deal to us and five other people, and then you're in a jump. We're in a negotiated basis. Our referrals come from alliance partners. We looked at $18.8 billion of referrals last year. We fund about two, 25 to 3% of what comes in the door. This year we looked at $5.4 billion in the first quarter, so that number yep. is rising. Believe it or not, we looked at 64,000 borrowing opportunities last year. So we've got a whole process set up internally um, with about 180 people in the lender, looks at them, parses them, Puts them in a file vault, puts a credit memo, goes to committee. It's just, it's, it's. We've sort of used technology to smooth out the lending process.
0: Gotcha. Um, one last question, then we will for you guys, and then we will go to some Q and A, if, if that's okay. Um, Pennant has actually one had one of the few purchases of another BDC. So I think there are other ways to grow, and I'm going to let these guys both talk, because they both use sort of different strategies. You with Tenenbaum, BlackRock, you with the acquisition of MGIC, MGC's. MCG. <laughs> MCG's uh, portfolio.
2: So um, I want to say we're going on, maybe that was like four plus years ago, that you know, there was another, I think you alluded to that there are some smaller BDCs out there that you know, have just decided it's you know it's a hard business and if you're not growing and you're not you know, doing well, people have have from time to time put themselves up for sale. This was something that you know actually went to a wide group of people. Um, we we tend to look at almost every opportunity that presents itself, you know, but I think MCG for us was a little bit of Goldilocks, so that was acquired by PFLT you know, because here was a business that I think had about 175 million of assets, though 100 million of it was effectively cash. So the other 75 was what I would dub, you know, there were 20 probably somewhat idiosyncratic loans that, you know, didn't look the way PFLT's first lien loans typically look. But we're, you know, with, you know, 20 loans, it's a very easy thing for our team to be able to, Dig in and you know dig in very granularly about you know is this a loan that you feel is comfortable and from the time we announced the deal to the time it closed the 20 loans basically went down to two loans pretty much because they did pay off and we concluded that the loans were fairly marked and so we were uh, I think a successful bidder you know but we used this as a way to what we thought was just sort of thoughtfully grow the business because at the time you know PFL to or first lien-focused BDC was small. I mean, and if you think about the sort of size of the market opportunity in, you know, sort of financings, the typical capital stack is, you know, 50 to 60 percent, you know, equity by a financial sponsor. You know, the top part is probably, say, four turns or, you know, 40 percent first lien and then 10 percent second lien. Or mezzanine, you know. So, like the the notion of how we've wanted to grow our business to be even more and more relevant to sponsors, you know, if you have a seat at the table when you're able to offer people, you know, we like the first lien of this loan probably more than we like the second lien or vice versa, you know, it just became important for us to be able to be, I'd say, more and more relevant on the first lien side, and so that was a, you know, a, a logical way for us to to grow that business without, you know. Taking on any real risk, so we were very excited that you know we were able to to integrate that that portfolio. That's great.
1: Um, we think acquisitions clearly are an interesting uh, way to grow. Uh, we looked at one recently. Uh, we trade about one point four five to one point four seven the NAV, um, and this was prospectively available at a discount. However, you know. Some of the hesitations were, if we did this, is my investor group going to go, why are you doing that? You're changing your mind. Now, the the reality of it is, if the assets are inexpensive, we have to go through about 25 to 30 credits, it probably made sense. But frankly, the other bidders are probably better bidders for these types of assets, because our return on equities historically have been very high. So ultimately, at a price, we were interested in it, but given how high our return on equity has been to shareholders, it's hard for us to compete in the space. But it clearly makes sense to try to acquire a block of assets that's accretive to the dividend and accretive to NAV. We'll look at them. I just don't think we could be competitive given what our other businesses are doing, and we're probably better off sticking to our knitting rather than looking at this other opportunity. It was only 25 to 30 credits to right. analyze, but we still
0: took a look at it, but we, we weren't competitive. But, but to be f- to be fair, you've sort of looked at it a, a different way, maybe just a minute on your JV with uh, TPC BlackRock.
1: Yeah, so uh, we just announced uh, a joint venture with BlackRock T- T- TCP, I'm gonna TCP, right, I always invert those. Um, and uh, they're going to put up 100000000 million. We're going to put up $100, million. We're gonna put up 100 million over time. We have a leverage facility from Deutsche Bank to launch what we view as non-conforming CNI loans. I use the term non-conforming. It means it doesn't conform to a government program that we've excelled in over 16 years. However, the credit box is the same. So it's the same credit box. It's the same credit thesis. Generally speaking, the loans are just larger. So it's our loan assemblers. It's our underwriters, it's our 18.8 billion of referrals from last year, on a run rate for 20 billion this year, because plenty of our referrals would be eligible for this. So we're launching this program, we're really excited about it. This joint venture doesn't consolidate, because it's even Steven, they have an equal say in, in what gets invested in, we have an equal say, but we are using and leveraging our infrastructure. So this is a way that we're, Actually, utilizing operating leverage as an internally managed BDC to take advantage of this particular market opportunity.
0: Thank you. Uh, we just have a few seconds here. Are there any questions in the room? Oh, hello, Nicholas.
2: Thank you very much for a great panel.
1: My question
2: is Is there a sweet spot in terms of the average loan size? I mean, you described how labor intensive is the whole process, so... Well, I mean, I think we do very different things, right? So your sweet spot's going to be different from, from ours. So when we think about, you know, a middle market loan, and, you know, we're able to... Look, we like the sort of sweet spot in size in terms of whether it's a company of, say, 15 to 35 million of EBITDA. And then if you're thinking about that with a sort of a first lien where maybe that has, you know, pick the easiest amount, so it's $20 million. That may have four turns of leverage. So that loan may be $80 million. And for us today, and where we can allocate based on exemptive relief across our varying funds because we also have some private funds based on available capital, so no fund is disadvantaged, you know, we would probably max out at, like, 40, because, like, if you look at our portfolio, we don't want to have—we're highly diversified in terms of concentration in our two publicly traded BDCs, so you want—you don't want, you know, more than 3 percent positions in any given name. I think the PNNT has something like 66 portfolio companies. PFLT probably has about 82 different portfolio companies. So. That might be something where we could speak on the high end to, say, 40 million of that, and then it would get allocated probably across a variety of funds that we manage, but still keeping a lot of diversity. And that's part of why we've been, you know, growing the senior side of our business. So you'd like to be able to be relevant. We'd probably club with another BDC or some other private fund lender to solve that solution, if that makes sense.
1: Um, with respect to sweet spot, we look at it more from a credit standpoint. Been in business two to three years. Average FICO score, the guarantor, 700 or greater. We like to have 65 to 75 percent of a collateral, be hard collateral, commercial or residential real estate. Uh, you know, and on that basis, we don't mind whether the loan is 100,000 or if it's 10 or 15 million. We want to make that loan, and that's, that's our business model. Have all the opportunities come in shaped them for program one, two, three, or four, but in that credit uh, position, we know what we're going to have between four and six percent charge-offs that are going to occur over the course of 12 years. That works well versus the coupon and the gain on sale income, and we get high rate returns on equity. I,
0: I think if you look at it universally very quickly, the, the very big BDCs don't have the time to do the smaller stuff, you know, the t- 40 or tens they're really the big guys are really out there buying syndicated lbo loans uh you know where they're writing hundred couple hundred million dollar checks across their platform so that is that is a much different sort of business than we have here these are two pretty unique and we think uh, very good very good bdc's in their own right and that's why we had them up here this today so i want to thank you guys nicholas thank thank you you for having us thank you everybody